There's a big difference between meeting someone famous, uh, believing they exist, um, knowing about them, and really knowing them. And what I want really for all of us this Christmas is to know the most famous person who's ever walked this planet, Jesus Christ. I want us to know him, not just know about him, not just believe that he exists, but know him personally more than ever, ever before. Now, a number of you know my story. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I always went along to church. I read the Bible and prayed. I believed in Jesus from a really early age. But for many years, if I'm being honest, my relationship with God felt distant, cold almost. It's like I knew a whole lot of truths about him, and I was trying really very, very hard to do the things that he commanded but it always seemed to be from a bit of a distance. He seemed kind of like a busy teacher who had set a whole load of assignments and then stepped out of the room, leaving us to get it done. And I knew he was coming back, so I was really busy with the assignments. But how do you love and feel close and intimate to someone like that? But you see, the great commandment is what? What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart or your mind or your soul or your strength. That means that God is supposed to be first in our affections, that we crave, that we desire, that we love, that we feel connected to Him more than anyone or anything else. You know what? As I was growing up, I wanted that level of closeness and intimacy with God. But as hard as I tried, I didn't really know how to develop that. A guy called J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool back in the 19th century, he said this. He said, you will never grow as a Christian until you develop a personal intimacy with the Lord Jesus, until you deal with Him as you would a best friend. Turn to Him first in every need. Consult Him at every step. Talk to Him about all your difficulties. Spread before Him all your sorrows. Allow Him to share in all your joys. Do all things as in His sight. To go through every single day leaning on Him. As I've said, I didn't have that kind of relationship with God, but I wanted it. How about you? Do you have that level of intimacy with Him? Do you, do you relate with God as you would with a close friend? Well, that's kind of what I want to press home today, because really at its very core, this is what this whole Christmas season is all about. I want to show you this morning that you can't love God until He becomes personal to you. Did you see what he did in history specifically for you? Now, to help you grasp this, uh, we're going to be turning to a passage in the Bible, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 22. Really, this is a passage that over the years has helped me move from a place of distance with God to a place of intimacy with him. Just by way of explanation about this passage, it's commonly thought that uh, what Paul is doing in these verses is quoting a hymn 
that was sung in the early church. It gives us this incredibly clear description of who Jesus is, but then right at the end of the hymn, Paul flips it right round and shows how everything Jesus did was for us, and that because of what he has done for us, really he's got to come first in our lives. We're going to go through this hymn line by line, and my prayer is that as we remind ourselves of what it is we are really celebrating this Christmas, my prayer is that we'd feel the wonder of God's pursuit of us more powerfully than perhaps ever before. You ready for that? Well, let's dive straight in. Starting in verse 15, Paul says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Let's pause there. I want to start with the end of that sentence. God is invisible. Uh, He's spirit. We, We can't see him physically with our eyes. So the question is, how then can he be known? Well, it says here, Jesus was the image of God. You say, well, wait a minute, aren't we made in the image of God as well? Yeah, but Paul means something fundamentally different here. To say that we are made in the image of God means that there are some things about us that resemble God, like our personalities, our our rational way of thinking, our relational abilities, and so on. But according to a passage later on in the New Testament, Hebrews 1 verse 3, we're told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The exact representation. In other words, all that God is, Jesus is. I mean, if Jesus wasn't fully God, then he couldn't be the exact representation. So, whereas we're made in the image of God, Jesus is the image of God. Let's keep going. Second half of verse 15. Jesus existed before anything else was created, and he is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. You know, artists say that in every great work of art, there's a piece of the soul of the artist. In other words, you can get to know a bit about the artist by looking at their art. And that's how creation is. The heavens, the psalmist says, declare the glory of God. It's like everything you love about the world around you was put there by God to point you towards him, to teach you a bit more of what he's like. One of the famous followers of Jesus in history past, Augustine, he put it like this. He said, all of creation is God's smile towards us. It's full of good gifts, gifts that are intended to draw us to him. goes on to liken it to a wedding ring, like no bride would get so fixated with the ring that she says, actually the ring's enough for me, forget the husband. No, the, the ring should point you to the faithful love of the man behind the ring. And in a similar way, at Christmas, if you enjoy being with family, 
or perhaps the adventure of traveling, or giving and receiving gifts, or eating and drinking in moderation. When, when you think of your greatest joys, your greatest hopes, really all of that is a taste of what's in the heart of God, in whose presence are pleasures forevermore. Author C.S. Lewis describes how the created things in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we cling merely to them. The beauty was never in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, cherish memories from our childhood. These are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not fully heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. C.S. Lewis goes on to speak of that sense that's deep down in all of us of homesickness for a place we haven't yet been. And he explains that it's because every good gift that God has given us points us towards Him. It's like they stir our desires, create this longing in us that can only ultimately be satisfied by knowing the giver of the gifts. Let's keep going in Colossians, verse 17. Jesus existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. In other words, Jesus has always existed. It's all made by Him. It's all for Him. It's all about Him. He he was there right at the very beginning. He writes the story in the middle. He'll be there at the very end. And our lives fall apart and unravel if He is not at the center of them. Verse 18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is His body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. There are two main ideas here in that verse. First of all, in Jesus, we get a glimpse of what we and all of creation will be in the future. Remember when Jesus was physically resurrected uh, as a man, He was able to eat, He was able to converse with friends, He was able to do crazy stuff like walking through walls and things. This is kind of our future if we believe in Jesus. We're going to get these brand new resurrection bodies that enjoy all the wonders of a recreated earth without any of the restrictions that currently hamper us with our physical bodies. It's the first thing. The second thing we see here is that Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. In other words, He's the source of life so that the closer we are to Him in relationship with others in the church, the more His life flows in us. Let me ask you, do you want God's resurrection power in your heart? Do you want God's resurrection power at work in your relationships with others? Do you want God's resurrection power at work in your family? Well, if you do, get more connected with the church and draw together closer to Him. And so, Paul says, by way of summary, He, Christ, is first 
in everything. Really, that's going to be our application today. We'll come back to that in a moment, but let's keep going. Verse 19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. I guess we're familiar with this, but just let it sink in. Has any other king or government or famous person ever done that? Where it it takes the traitor, the rebel, the criminal, and in addition to trying to bring them back in relationship, actually pays their debts as well. Here is Jesus, the king of the universe, taking the judgment for the rebellious traitor race upon himself and dying for it. Not only did he come after us to rescue us and draw us back to himself, he also paid the debt for our sins in our place. He did it himself. Why? So that he might come first in our lives. And then watch how Paul makes it intensely personal. Verse 21, this includes you, Paul says, This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault." Paul says, look, this is true of me, and it's equally true of you. All of this he did personally, specifically for you. As he considers this, it makes him burst into praise. It's like he just can't hold it in. Listen, this is what I want for you. I want you to sit in stunned awe at who Jesus is and what he has done. Not merely in some kind of factual sense, but in a deep relational sense. That this would be an experienced reality in your life, and that all of your life would flow out of that. At the end of the day, your spiritual life will never fully take off until doctrine, what you believe, becomes a dynamic relational reality. And when that happens, I pray that Jesus becomes first in these four areas in your life that I quickly want to unpack before we're done. Number one, this Christmas, may Christ be first in your worship. May Christ be first in your worship. Paul can't talk about these things without breaking into this hymn of praise. It's like worship isn't something he did just once a week. No, his whole life exploded with this reality. This Christmas, I want the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God coming to earth. I want it to overwhelm you. I want you to see it with fresh eyes. I want you to see that what Jesus was doing, he was doing for you think about this for a few moments. As the Son of God, 
Jesus was able to miraculously feed 5,000 people just like that. But as the Son of Man, he willingly took on human form and knew what it was to be hungry so that ultimately he could turn around and say to you, look, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. As the Son of God, Jesus was able to turn water into wine. Easy for him to do. As a son of man, he also had a physical body that knew what it was to be thirsty, so that ultimately he could say to you, look, whoever thirsts in a spiritual sense, let him come to me and drink. The water, the spiritual water that I will give him will become in him this well of water springing up into eternal life. As the Son of God, Jesus spoke the whole world into existence. As the Son of Man, he had a physical body that grew weary and tired. So that at the end of the day, he could say to you, look, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you true rest. As the Son of God, Jesus dwelt in glory. As the Son of Man, he was born in a stable and grew up in poverty with no place to lay his head, so that he could promise you an inheritance that could never, ever, ever be taken away from you. Though he was rich, for my sake he became poor, that I, through his poverty, might become rich. He took the stable so that he could prepare for us a place in glory. As the Son of God, Jesus was adored by angels for his perfect holiness. As the Son of Man, he was condemned by Pilate, scourged by whips, scorned by man, because God chose to make him who knew no sin to become sin for me. And though he looked incredibly frail, fragile, and weak the first time he came, the second time he most certainly won't. At his first coming, born in a stable. At his second, he'll come riding on the clouds in glory. At his first coming, crowned with thorns. At his second, ruler of the universe. At his first coming, crucified on the cross. At his second coming, glorified. At his first coming, he he yielded up his body to crucifixion, his back to the whips, his cheeks to those that plucked out his hair. At his second coming, the government will be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. At his first coming, his enemies cried, we will not have this man to reign over us. But the second time, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's coming again and every eye will see him and all who see him will fall immediately upon their faces in worship. But as fearsome as that prospect is, I have no reason to fear because at his first coming, he came to bear my judgment and stand in my place so that at his second coming, there would now be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so there's now absolutely nothing in the heavens above or on the earth below that could ever, ever, ever separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ, my Lord. How does that not 
make you burst into worship. Paul says, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are now holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. All of this was for me and for you. Listen, the joy of the Christian life is found in worship. And until you get that, you'll be miserable. You will. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not merely talking about what we do when we gather here on a Sunday morning for uh, an hour and a half or so. In fact, that's just a small part of what worship really is. I'm talking about the worship that consumes you so that you're continually overwhelmed with the majesty and the glory of what God has done for you so that everything else in all of life fades in comparison to the treasure you have in Jesus. And until you learn what it is to live with that treasure, you'll know joy but not true joy. True joy is found in the mystery of what God did in the incarnation for you. And when you experience the glory of what God did when he came after you, even though you were his enemy, to rescue you, fill you with his fullness, that's when you'll begin to overflow with worship. So number one, may Christ be first in our worship this Christmas. Secondly, may Christ be first in our affections. When God comes into your life, everything changes. It absolutely has to, because of the power of what you now have in Him, there has got to be this radical transformation in your life. You know, over the years I've heard people say stuff like, well, I I, want to become a Christian, but it would mean having to quit doing this or that, so I don't think I will. You know, first, that way of seeing God in the world is terribly faulty. Life works best when lived according to the Creator. But the bigger problem with that question is that there is something fundamentally wrong with you when you ask it. When you think about the infinite God coming into your life and you consider His joy filling you for all eternity... And you're complaining about not being able to do certain stuff as if that were even a condition on which you would know the God of the universe. That shows how little you understand the value of God. Because when you understand His sheer value, there is nothing on earth that you would ever want to hold on to if it would keep you from more of Him. And so, when you know Him personally, everything in your life gets turned upside down. Everything changes. I mean, when you realize how great a treasure God is, very little can devastate you anymore. It's kind of like inheriting a million pounds and the next day your car breaks down. You you suddenly have a very different perspective, don't you? I mean, who cares? I could buy a whole fleet of cars. If you know the value of God, then when things happen... Yes, it can be incredibly painful, and I in no way wish to belittle the very real pain of suffering. 
but ultimately it's not devastating. At the end of the day, how much you believe the gospel is measured by your ability to know joy in all things. Let me just say by way of an aside, for those of you in the room who maybe secretly are dreading this Christmas season, I don't know, maybe you're alone this Christmas, maybe you have family but being with them is painful, maybe you're battling depression, maybe you're anxious about everything you've got to do in the coming year. Sadly, I can't fix all those things for you, but what I can tell you is there is a God whose value makes all of those things look small. There is a God who is with us, who promises to take care of us, whose treasure is so infinite that it has the power to change our perspective on even the most dark, the most hopeless situations. May Christ be first in our affections. Thirdly, may Christ be first in our objectives. You need to know that Christ's kingdom is actually more important than yours. His story is way more important than your personal story. Perhaps the most useful gift that you could receive this Christmas is simply the ability to see everything in your life through the lens of Christ coming first. Let me put it like this. You know how there's normally a main character in any film? I think most of the time, if we're being honest... We live, don't we, as though we're the main character in the story. Kind of everything else revolves around us. But I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news to you. I'd humbly suggest, I don't want to fall out with anyone in the room, but I'd humbly suggest you are merely a bit part player. The main character in the story of world history isn't you is Jesus Christ. All things we've seen were created by Him and for Him. His story is the one that goes on forever, and in His grace, in His kindness, He invites us to play a part in His story. Now, here's what's so wonderful about this, here's why it's not actually bad news. If my story is wrapped up in His, then when He wins, I win, and I get to enjoy his victory for eternity. But if I'm merely telling my own story, then it dies with me. When the credits roll, it's over, finished, nothing more. However, if my story is wrapped up in Jesus, then it goes on through the ages and never, ever, ever ends. Which is why I'm more than willing to be a very small, minor, insignificant character in his story rather than the main character in my story. I pray that whatever your situation, Christ may come first. Whether you're in a season of pain right now or a season of blessing, may Christ be first in our objectives. And then fourthly and finally, may Christ be first in our church. May the focus 
never be on us, but always on him. How does that happen? Sounds great in theory. What does that look like? Well, I really hope it's reflected in how I preach. I I don't want to point you to me. I always want to point you more and more and more to Jesus. As we plan, is what we're doing about our name or the glory of God? What are our prayers for? Simply our needs being met or God's glory spread in the world? Let me ask you, who or what do you come here for? More than anything else, God wants you here because you're growing to love Him and want to meet with Him more. Let me close with this. John Wesley, one of the great preachers in the Great Awakening back in the 1700s, he he studied theology for several years, even served as a missionary overseas before he was really converted to the Christian faith. You see, it's really easy to be very involved in church, appear very religious, without a living personal relationship with God. Now, one night, Wesley reluctantly went to a meeting at his church. Maybe like some of you came along here this morning. I don't know, but that's for later. But he went, and there was someone there reading Luther's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans. Here's how Wesley described what happened as these words were read. At about 8.45 p.m., while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I knew I trusted Christ and Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. My sin, for me, that's conversion. It's where doctrine becomes a dynamic relationship. It's where what God did in history becomes something you believe He did specifically for you. Have you experienced this in your life? Is this reality for you? My prayer is that the rest of your life would simply be a response to the glory of the incarnation. This story we get to celebrate at Christmas of God coming to earth to save us.